Hi and welcome to the podcast you're having tea with Alice. This week's episode is with the incredibly lovely George Dimarelos and we spoke about books, we spoke about Marxism, we spoke about all sorts of things. It was a retake of a conversation we had. Uh, I always tell my guests that if they don't like what they've said they can go back and we can re-record because I'm not a gotcha journalist. I'm here to have difficult conversations with interesting people which means leaving room for people to make mistakes or misspeak or, um, you know, do things wrongly. Anyway, I think this is a fascinating conversation. I will let you get on with listening it as the construction noise um, surges in the background. I keep, I've been putting off, I've been putting off recording these introductions to these episodes, which I have had banked for a few weeks because of this background noise. And I've given up on waiting. I want you to listen to these conversations because I think they're good ones. And I, I am so grateful to everyone who is stuck with me and who's supporting me who's listening to the last post who is uh, supporting me on patreon.com slash alice fraser who's been coming to the tea salons over on patreon.com uh well it's not on but you get the passwords there for the zoom meetings or in person and everyone who shares this with other people i will stop talking because you can hear the background noise but i'm happy to be talking to you again despite that and uh, I love doing these I love them so much email me at alicerfraser at gmail.com if you'd like to chat I'm always available or uh, I'm often quicker to reply on patreon that's all I will talk to you again next week you're having tea with Alice so let's do this I will start with the traditional question who are you and what are you drinking I am George, and I am drinking George Dimarelos, as you said, and I am drinking the uh, green tea that you recommended, actually, from Taka Tea, the Genmaicha Japanese uh, green tea, and it is delicious. It's a pretty great green tea, uh, Taka Tea. I, I always recommend it to people, uh, not just because they were very nice to me when I was a lonely teenager skipping school and going to the tea shop to read novels, like the <laughs> such a bad boy. <laughs> massive nerd that I am. Um, <laughs> this is such an embarrassing form of rebellion. Um, <laughs> yeah. that's, that's actually better than me. The one time I, uh, a few times when I wagged, the first time I wagged ever, I just went and sat in the toilet with my mate, one cubicle each, just next to each other, just sat there. We're like, we're so bad. <laughs> just just well, didn't want to go to class. For me, it was not necessarily on purpose uh, skipping school all the time because what, what happened was on Fridays in my final year of school, I had uh, one period in the morning and then a double period at the end of the day. And I would go across uh, sometimes to Fox Studios and sit reading and then I'd get caught up in a book and I'd miss the last two periods of the day because I was te technically allowed to take the middle of the day off. But, uh yeah. And the one time I took my friend Yael Frisch, who is uh, very, very rule-abiding, and we left to visit a friend of ours who was sick. And because she was in a wheelchair, um, the whole school panicked about it. And she, <laughs> she got in so much trouble. And then I got That's in trouble hilarious. for letting her leave. And I was like, what, do you want me to tie her to a tree? Like, she's a... You know, she's as much of a, a adult. Like we were technically allowed to leave, but we just didn't sign out. Right, anyway. <laughs> that's hilarious. She, she oh, remains such one a... of my few friends from school. Even though you're such a terrible bad girl influencer, <laughs> just drag <laughs> in the geekiest way possible and the sweetest. Uh, so, what have you been wrestling with of late? Um. So. It's once now it's been going on for a while, but it's this uh, concept of this. Uh, I mentioned to you before, like a little bit the, the class reductionism sort of debate. Well, yeah, but we, I mean, we have to assume the person listening has not been um, privy to our previous conversation. So why don't you lay yeah, that yeah. out? Um, I, so essentially uh, it's a concept which I've now since learned uh, was technically a slur people would throw at people who thought like this because they're being so simplistic. Uh, but essentially, it's the idea that uh, most big issues uh, in terms of like that face the world can be boiled down to class conflict of some kind. So, um, I mean, that's that is an interesting argument. And I, I'll tell you my initial reactions, um, yep. which is that I feel like there is some merit to that. 
But as with many other things that seem to explain everything, they there's a lot of things that seem to explain everything. Does that make sense? That you know, there's we 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 lean towards these um, totalizing explanations of the world, whether it's uh, QAnon or religion or whatever. We we like to have. Uh, one reason why everything is good or one reason why everything is bad, when in fact it's usually a lot of different things interacting with one another in unpredictable ways. Mm. But that said, go 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 for it, class. Well, let me uh, introduce you to a little book I just read called The Communist Manifesto. <laughs> <laughs> I actually did just read that, which is... a. Uh... <laughs> I'm deep down this tunnel now, basically. I read that and Utopia, Thomas More's book from like the 15th oh, century, yes. um, which which is actually a fluke. I wasn't planning to do it. And then I realized whilst reading that, that that is very much like it's it's both in good and bad ways, almost the picture people paint of a communist nightmare in certain ways, like just in terms of everyone dresses the same, everyone lives in the same house, everyone does everything the same in that sense, which in many ways isn't the kind of, overriding goal of the communist i'm going to sound like some big communist by the end of this podcast even though that's very much not my uh well i mean how much are you subject to the thing i think it happens to all of us i think it's a nature of the way that the human brain works but how much are you influenced by what you read in terms um, of that like do you are you subject to the thing if you read a thing and you're like aha this is the the way i think now or do you synthesize it into a broader picture and analyze it in context i i think i've i've developed <laughs> which which i think part of that just comes from reading more so like at the start everything almost exists in its own vacuum so it's not until you have that broader tapestry to then place it within that you can like then especially when it's like a book and it sounds smart to put it dumbly but like when it's a book yeah. and someone's saying confident you're like yeah oh my god this sounds so legit and then like it takes you a long time to be like oh maybe i was giving that too much credit because it was written well it's particularly dangerous when the person writing the book is smarter than you are but that yeah. doesn't make them right if you're having an no. argument with someone and 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 i think we've all uh had this experience or maybe we haven't maybe we're all the smartest people in every room we walk into where you end up in a conversation or a discussion or an argument with somebody who is either smarter or more articulate or more capable in argumentation than you are and mm-hmm. they can just beat you down on every point but you 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 know that it, it's not right. You know, they don't quite convince you. They beat you, but they defeat you, but they don't convince you, yep. if that makes sense. I uh, I do know. Yeah, that does make a lot of sense. My best friend and I, uh, uh, legendary for the fights we used to get into, all through school <laughs> and everything, and he's very much of that uh, super intelligent guy. So he's actually right a lot of the time, but he also is unafraid to use every tactic in the argument toolbox uh, as part of winning. So that like a character assassination, false, po- like straw men, <laughs> false, po- like grouping, all that stuff. He would do it all with, uh, with like from a nice place, I'll say, because he's just trying to win his, what he thinks is a correct thing. But like, yeah, it's something I, uh, I would come into a bit differently because I was kind of going there and being like, what about this? But then I was actually kind of probably doing some tricks as well. So <laughs> it's kind of both ways there. Um, but the, actually what you said there though, I want to, something I found interesting because you talk about like the smartest maybe not necessarily the smartest person or that. And I find that, and I'm sure you probably have this view as well. Like I find that title so annoying in some ways, like in terms of the smartest person, because of how loose that definition is mm. like of like what, what constitutes smart or not. Cause like, I mean, as we all know, there's definitely people who uh, would score very highly on an IQ test. who probably hold views, which are beyond stupid in many ways, <laughs> like as in, which make no sense if you look at things from a more rational perspective or whatever, or within even the framework they exist in. To go back to, I mean, conspiracy theory and stuff like that, you'd probably find people who would score very high technical IQ tests who then are also really stupid in some ways. Um, Yes. Uh, One of the things that I come back to again and again is a distinction between rational and reasonable, which is sort of me using those terms maybe not in the way that they are meant to be used but it's one thing to sort of the way I think of the distinction between rational and reasonable is, for example, classically a very gendered form of argument where a, a guy will say to a girl, but let's, let's throw away the gender definitions. A person A will say to person B, 
you're so emotional, right? Yeah. Take the emotions out of the argument <coughs> and let's deal with the facts as mm-hmm. though emotions weren't part of the fact scenario, mm-hmm. you know? So reason is this framework that we put on top of the world as it exists. Logic, reasoning, here are the here are the pieces and we can add them up or divide them mathematically. Um, but in reality, uh, that's a frame you're imposing on reality, whereas emotions are part of reality. No one ever fainted from a fact. You can have deep physical reactions to, emo- to emotions that you... Mm that I think make them worth factoring into an argument, whether it is um, factoring them in, understanding what role they play, understanding how relevant and how real they are or how justified they are, unpacking them in that way. You have to deal with the emotions because they're real. You can't just set them aside, which is not to say that emotions are more important than facts. It's just to say that they are, you can't, you can't address an argument to a reality that doesn't include emotions. And that's when you get those arguments where someone will beat you down on every point without changing how you feel about it at all. Mm. Yeah, I guess like I can understand. Uh, yeah, it's definitely like, firstly, you can't win anyone over with anything without relating, making them feel comfortable enough to change their minds. Um, but it, like the emotional one is interesting because I definitely agree that they're important. Um, in terms of just just to take into account in any situation how someone felt about something but at the same time i'm so tentative just because like one of the things in the world that infuriates me more than anything else in the world is crocodile tears and it, and the person might actually think they're real who's having those crocodile tears but at the same time they're saying horrific or defending horrific things and they're crying because they're worried about something happening to them and you're like you're crying right now for something with like that's your way of actively avoiding a bigger topic, like I won't go into a specific instance because they're probably all very touchy, but anything where someone's defending a certain, let's say a, a, a government or a government's actions where they're like, oh, they're protecting us from this and they're crying and you're like, yeah, but that protection is killing way more people than your fear about this one small event. And it's like those crocodile tears, are, your emotions are clouding that and you're, you're using emotion actually as a tool to hide the rational perspective, which is that this is bad or <laughs> this is resulting in more damage yes so i think that's what what i mean when i'm when i'm talking about like maybe a distinction or a difference or something which is that if you tell that person that their emotions are stupid or irrelevant it's not particularly functional but you can if you deal with the emotion as part of reality if you understand where it's coming from what function it's performing uh where it sits then you can understand what to do with it and how to address it. So, for example, it might be, uh, in blunt terms, the wrong emotion to be having. So, for example, perhaps you are overreacting to something because of previous traumas. And I know this, you know, uh, as a woman walking alone at night, if I see uh, a car slow down at the curb close to where I'm walking and roll alongside me, they might be looking for a house number for their friend's house, but I will overreact. I will have this sense of, of fear and predation because I've had cars follow me around. I've had people try to you know, pull me into vehicles in the night. And so my reaction is emotional and irrational, you know, yeah. and, and, and I have to kind of be conscious of that and factor that in so that I don't, I don't know, throw a rock at a car my, I shouldn't be led by my emotions, but I have to factor them into the scenario. I need to be aware that I'm going to have this emotion, that it will be an overreaction, uh, and then process that. So right. I think there's it's somewhere that sits between um, the idea that people who are upset are always right because their upsetness is some sort of truth just yeah yeah it shows that they're serious yeah it, you know what i mean there's, there's people who use their emotional reaction as a, a, a that they're as an argument which it isn't yeah. you know it's somebody who says well i know god is real because i feel like god is real what what is that i i can't deny that you feel that way but it's not <laughs> it's not an argument yeah. um 
And so we have to kind of unpack where you get that feeling from, what it means, and, and so on and so forth. What you mean by God, what you mean by the feeling of God, etc. Um, but equally, so I, yeah, I guess I sit between those two two positions. Yeah. Sorry, one sec. Just good. Um, yeah, like it's interesting you bring that up because it is something which uh, it weighs on me a little bit because I keep thinking about how like so much. Like it's actually his, so related to that, it's like that classic thing you see uh, in right wing loves it where they go like facts don't care about your feelings. And I find it so funny. Feelings don't care about your facts. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> that's, it's completely the opposite. So this fact is wrong. And the funniest part is it's a fact that's exclusively about feelings and it's not even a good fact. So it's like, it's just wrong on so many levels, this fact that they're claiming uh, because yeah, feelings don't care about your facts. And they, and, and like, I don't know, it, it, I get frustrated because like, it's actually something so, okay, I don't know about you, but I've been actually, you're, you're in Sydney, so you've got more free time than I do. But I, I've spent too much time on Facebook recently. And I've noticed one thing, which is interesting. Uh, I've picked a few fights, not picked a few fights, but I've seen if someone post something like far. I've got some friends who are like deep into the conspiracy stuff on the right where they'll post something and they'll be like constant from these news sources. And I'll just go at them and I'll be completely polite the whole time. But I've found something which is interesting when you talk about the emotional side of things. The interesting thing about arguing someone from, uh, let's say, the who identifies or acts from the right wing is that because they're so trying to be, they convinced that they're the most rational and they're, they're factual about everything. <laughs> the one plus side is when you tell them that they're being emotional, they will bend over backwards to show that they're not being emotional. Like they will try to be like, no, no, no. And they'll like try to act out like to get away from that, which is funny. Cause I'm like, that's actually, at least you're like, trying to like even though you're doing it from such a dumb place and i'm not going to convince you on anything anyway it's so refreshing to have someone not then be like how dare you say that and like be more emotional as a result of like being like like they're like they get defensive the wrong way so they're just as stupid but <laughs> it's funny when you argue something from the right at least you can it's like a petty win where you can be like oh sorry if i'm like doing anything which triggers any emotions on your part and then they're like no i don't get triggered and then they just get upset about that a weird part of me enjoys the fact that at least I can say that and it won't cause, it won't be then incorporated into the argument against me in some way, which is more the case when you argue with someone from the other end of the spectrum. Yeah, I mean, obviously this is all sort of a, 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 is, a hosh, hodgepodge of different ideas about, about emotions and argumentation, but one yeah. of the things that is in the mix uh, for me is the, that there are certain emotions that are considered more emotiony emotions than others. So resentment and <laughs> anger aren't really considered emotions in that way. If you're having an argument and someone's being really resentful and angry and then mm. you start crying, they'll call you emotional, even though your emotion <laughs> is in reaction to their intense emotion. Uh, yeah, it's yeah, very, yeah. very rare that someone will get emotional in response, you know, in that traditional again relatively gendered way of like if I start crying it's very rare that I'll get I'll start crying when somebody is talking to me in a very calm open reasonable way like that doesn't happen it's usually in response to <laughs> yeah yeah rage or resentment or aggression and those are just those aren't emotions those are whatever they are driving fuel for rational thinking I don't know what what their rationale yeah. is but, but it's yeah. just too much logic it's just <laughs> ah, I'm just too rational right now <laughs> it is, I, I just find that such a funny kind of loophole that, that people give themselves yeah um, yeah of, of what 100%. counts when what doesn't count it's uh, uh, so funny enough. So with that, uh, to go back to what we're saying about the smart versus like what's smart, I've actually developed a theory, which I've talked to a friend about many times over the years, uh, where I throw out the idea of smartness, obviously IQ and stuff, it can count towards something, but I actually consider intelligence now probably more in the, the much looser definition of self-awareness. Like mm -hmm. the more someone is self-aware, the smarter they are essentially in a way, like as in, which can make you a dick, like you can be a mean person and stuff, but at least you, if you know, that you are being this way because that's what you want to be. Like if you're more aware, that just means you're able to look at a situation more dispassionately in a sense, if you're just self-aware, you just know why you're thinking it, then you're, you're removing yourself as the factor that influences how you take in all that information. So yeah. that immediately puts you in a different category almost, I which to go back to the emotion thing. Yeah. It's, I think it's interesting because I don't often think about whether people are smart in, or not. 
the thing, the qualities that I admire in people, and maybe it's because I don't have them myself, uh, or I try to cultivate them in myself because I don't think they're naturally occurring in me, is uh, I have a friend who is by no means academically smart. Uh, she is slow to absorb new ideas, but she is passionate about learning and she will always ask the questions and she's always 100% honest and she has a strong uh, ethical base. She's intellectually honest in a way that, you know, I'm extremely guilty in the past of, of half grokking an idea and being like, yeah, 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 I get it. She will go, I don't understand. Please explain it to me eight times, 10 times, 12 times, however many times it takes for her to get the idea. And the combination of that honesty and that drive to learn, she doesn't give up on learning. For me, that's the most attractive intellectual quality. Mm. So it's not, it's, it's a, that's what I think of as a smart person, even though that's not something that you can assess with tests. It's somebody going, let me really understand this idea and be 100% honest about the process of learning it. Do I really understand it? Am I getting it from this angle? This is how I feel about it. This is what I think I think, you know, because so many people and these are subject to like the Dunning-Kruger effect. So many people think they understand something and don't. So many people are not intellectually honest about their own and that the sort of the self-awareness of like, how much do I understand this idea? Do I understand it as much as I think I do? That how much do me, I want to know? Yeah. Yeah. How much do I want to actually know this or do I want to be seen to know this? Do I want yeah. just a few? And, you know, you see this with private school boys, particularly where you'll talk to them for half an hour before you realise that they're an idiot because they know the language and they have like particular turns of phrase and they have some reference points and they've read this article and they can talk about Foucault. And then you're like, oh, you're, an, you just, you're just doing the headlines. This is just Twitter. Like there's no depth to this conversation. You're not actually capable of using these ideas. You're just name checking them. Mm. That's a, yeah, okay. Well, you know, I don't know why I'm acting defensive when I'm not even like that. I just see a private school, but I'm like, what? <laughs> I can defend my boys, but no, that's true. Some of them, I think, <laughs> can be like that. It's the virtue um, of a good education, but you see it, you know, in politics all the time. Mm-hmm. Um, no, yeah, no, that's true. I, uh, that's, I think, and especially, like, that's to go back, like, when, yeah, so if she's looking at that and she's, like, she's willing to be, admit she's wrong or she doesn't know it ten times, because, yeah, a lot of people might get to the third time and be like, oh, I think I get it, and it lines up with what I want to be true, so I get it. <laughs> like, yeah, yeah. they're not willing to actually get it that is like okay no no this makes sense because this lines up with what i believe so I, i'm good now like as in yeah, yeah. that's uh, my twin brother has that quality of just really getting it and I, I i'm a shortcut taker and i know that that's a bad trait in myself i'll sort of take the shortcut get to the finish line as quickly as i can and sort of uh, that, that's a deep intellectual failing on my part <laughs> I mean, well, obviously, okay. I try. You know, I, I'm honest about it because try I try to, to yeah. try to counter it. Um, but it is one of the things that I find very attractive intellectually in people. All right. Well, if you if you like taking shortcuts, can I introduce you to a book called The Communist Manifesto? <laughs> Speaking of which, uh, class <laughs> class consciousness. Uh, no. <laughs> no, just because you are making me think, because I I'm, I definitely have done the same thing, and I might even be doing the same thing right now about class. <laughs> but hey, that's what this podcast is about, right? Chatting yeah. through these topics, chatting through ideas you've only got sure. the edge of, yes, and finding out where yeah. where you've got them, where you don't have them, where you think you believe them, all of that stuff. So, what do you think? The Communist Manifesto explains to you about class. Well, that, that so I was thinking of this before the Communist Manifesto, and, and the Communist Manifesto, I will say, it's fast. It's I love reading these older books where, like, you read it and you're like, oh my, it's like when you read philosophy from like 2000 years ago, and you're like, I can't believe they thought of this then, and we're still talking about it now. Like, as in, these people thought of this so long ago, like, as in, it's just crazy to me. And that doesn't mean like we shouldn't think about it now, but it's like, it's there's ideas that have developed for a very long time for us to stroll in in the end and be like, nah, actually, I think everything is an opinion. Actually, it's like they've been talking about this for two and a half thousand years. Okay, this is one of the beefs my brother has with the intellectual dark web, which is that they don't cite to their sources, they present these ideas as though they're coming up with them themselves, and he thinks that that's sort of a disservice. But I was reading the diaries of Lady Mary Wortley Montague because I was writing some jokes for the guilty feminist. 
um, about her. So she was this 17th century uh, aristocrat's wife, diplomatic wife, travelled all around, wrote these travel journals and, and you know, super fascinating. She went and in Greece she had like a face face peel, like a face treatment, and it made her face go red and sting up and apparently that, you know, it was just a facial peel uh, and she mm. said that they swear by it, the ladies swear by it. But she said, I'm going to, like, I'm never going to do that again. I'm just going to age and that's that's what's going to happen. I'm just going to accept whatever happens to my face. And I thought that is so revolutionary that it is revolutionary now for an ageing woman to go, oh, look, whatever my face is, that's my face, is she's still, like, since the 1700s, that is still cutting-edge feminism to go, yeah, it's my face, it'll, it'll be what it is. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's, that's exactly it. Like, why am I looking at you as a warrior <laughs> now still? Like, yeah, yeah. No, that's, well, so on that note, so with uh, looking at that, the one about, especially the Communist Manifesto, is reading it and being like, well, I saw it in Utopia as well. I think if you wanted to summarize the book, the Communist Manifesto, it's like it is the best diagnosis of capitalism I've ever read. You could ever imagine, and I cannot believe how accurate it was. But then, what it said is going to happen from it is probably the part where it's weaker. <laughs> like, great diagnosis, not great prediction and solution. But uh, the diagnosis is beyond belief. How perfect? Because it's just logical. It's just a smart guy who's looking at the system and being like, "This, these are the flaws in it," and then uh, going from there. Like, so uh, I mentioned to you, I had a guest on my like one of the shows. I do, which is called Bookish. This uh, I had this lecture on, and she was talking about a book called Fossil Capital. Uh, so, in really brief, basically, it's about looking at the industrial revolution through a class lens. Mm. Um, and the idea is that actually the, the industrial revolution in terms of steam power uh, was ridiculously inefficient for a very long time. So, uh, but they still pushed for it to happen way before it was actually more efficient than mills and wheels and, and rivers and that. And the reason they did it was because uh, instead of having to have workers out at rivers and things, they could shove the same amount, you still needed the same amount of people, if not more, but you could put them in the city and all of a sudden, because originally they were out at mills around water, rivers all around uh, the UK, they had bargaining power because people weren't there to replace them. So they could argue for wages, they could unionize, they could do all these things. But by taking those people and shoving them into the middle of London, they all of a sudden, and their task was like pretty mechanical as well, and they didn't have to be anywhere else, they became much easier to replace. So what the steam power actually provided wasn't a technological advantage, at least not at the start, but like the first like 30 years its advantage was purely in breaking the labour class and getting cheaper wages. So I've heard this argument or this uh, same set of facts uh, approached from a different angle, which is mm -hmm. that as a result of various uh, losses of human life uh, in the first part of, of that century, uh, working peasants had negotiating power for the first time and a lot of them moved to the cities for access. It's the same reason that people move to the cities now. And so there was this massive incentive to industrialise um, in order that they didn't have this pushing power and to, but also to replace the workers in the fields who had gone from being like part of the land, conceptually speaking and religiously speaking, and, and you know, that was you know, you had these ideas of people's roles in the hierarchy of nature and that sort of got broken by, you know, the plague, the War of the Roses, all of these one thing after another. And then you had the idea of the Magna Carta and rights as against the king and all of that cascaded to this point where there was this big push for industrialisation, which led basically directly to uh, British dominance in the globe. Uh, well... So when you say so, when you say push for industrialization, what are you meaning there? Like, as in, who was pushing? And I'm. I, what I mean is that it was it, it was a push or push and pull, I guess. So the workers were wanting to, you know, you can't drag someone into the city and force them into a factory. There's a couple of ways that that will happen. One is that it's no longer worth it for them to work their land. Second is maybe that the commons have been enclosed for sheep, so they don't have access to the resources that they do and it's they can't make a subsistence living. The other is they think there's more opportunities in the city, they're getting paid more or more reliably, um, or they feel like they get more autonomy or freedom if they're not tied to the land. Um, 
so there's yeah I, I would say again I think that's that your lady's story is a good one but again it's a slightly totalizing narrative in a situation where I imagine there were maybe 10 or 12 or a thousand different factors both pushing and pulling uh 100% and I agree with you. And this is where my uh, economist side of me comes out because I definitely think even if, uh, even for the sake of uh, growth in general, you might have to break some eggs to get to the point where you get the dominance that England had around the world. And people are always going to rush there. Now, what combination of factors? I always assumed it was going to be more than that. That's why I, I find it, I just found it interesting the concept of technology not immediately being more efficient. That's the part I found so interesting. Like the fact that the way, the, the benefit of it isn't actually in the technology being efficient, it's in the ability to change the labor conditions in a way. Um, but that's so that that's but that was one example I found was interesting. But uh, in terms of the to go back to the class analysis sort of thing. So firstly, like when I was talking with her about it, she's like, "Yeah, this is really interesting because no one's looked at history like through the class lens in a little while in the in the in the history sciences. I guess they've had more of a looking at it from different ends, from an intersectional point of view in terms of race and gender and, and sexuality and all that stuff." Uh, but now apparently class is coming back as a big focus in general, um, which I'm sure it never went away completely either. But the the concept of class, I guess, in that sense, and this is why, and it appeals to me in another sense, and I'm going to be honest, this is to go back to the self-awareness thing. I kind of like the idea of, I love the idea of a simple answer. <laughs> I also love the idea <laughs> of um, one thing kind of, it, it just makes sense to me intrinsically that, they like this would under because again my economic leanings i just think economics is everything in a way like i don't think everything else matters as much as people might think i just think everything is about and economics is essentially like so power structures and things like that and who has it and where is it and who can get it um rather than looking at anything through any sort of lens of anything else so a part of me likes that uh and so that's why I almost say this, but I have had debates with my friend about this recently where he's tried to, he's like, don't go too far down this. You got to take into account these other things. But I said, he hasn't won me over completely because I still think like, I would put it this way. I think class is everything. Like in terms of that is, if you take care of class stuff, that's the number one thing. And then you can focus on these other issues that exist next. But if you're ever arguing about any of these other issues and then as a result, ignoring the class thing, then you're undercutting your own position for later. Like, is it potentially? Like, I mean, I give example, um, Amy Coney Barrett, which whatever else might say about Supreme Court judge, probably isn't the best for a lot of groups around the world. Um, she would almost be an example of where you have groups of power getting the right, let's say, genders in position, but all of a sudden they're getting in a position and then able to undercut the very benefits that they have. And I would argue that that's happened as a result of class warfare that's been going on for the last 30 or 40 years where all of a sudden you're actually, this is the bedrock. The bedrock of everything is class. And then we can still focus on all these issues do exist, but inequality is the biggest number one issue. So yes, I would say, I would agree with you that inequality is the issue. I would say that class is a massive factor that is often pushed to the side in conversations that are... Um, that are worse for ignoring class because I think class is an important part of the equation and, and possibly a but-for level of importance, possibly a fundamental um, part of the equation. But I don't think economics explains everything. Uh, I think, I think, <laughs> I think, I think ideologies are incredibly powerful and can be counter-economic uh, to whatever degree that happens to be, whether it's that children shouldn't be in factories, even though we'd all make more money if we put our children in factories. Like that is a, an ideology that is counter to economics. Economics cannot be everything in that equation. Um, okay, but in, but in that, that ideas sense. are more powerful when they link themselves to economic benefit. Like I don't think feminism would have gotten as far as it has gotten did it not mean a doubling of the workforce? And I think I think where feminism has failed to achieve as much as I think it ought is in things like valuing the things that are difficult to put in economic terms, like the value of, say, the first two or three years of a child's life being with a nurturing parent full time. 
and then what that does to their ability to connect to other humans 20 years down the line, what that does to their, you know, emotional stability 20 years down the line, that is not a convenient fact for the kind of feminism that is linked to a woman's productivity in the workforce or a man's productivity in the workforce. But let's say for the first year or if you're breastfeeding while you're breastfeeding, you know, how do you value that economically speaking? You can't. And that is where I feel feminism has failed to achieve something that I think is incredibly important, which is to say valuing a woman for what she does for the community that isn't her participation in the workforce. Yep. Um, and I, and actually I would say that even that you could almost tie back to, <laughs> I guess when I said economics, before, I probably should have clarified. So like what I mean is that it's, it's the most impactful. So even to go back to what you said about a child, that's not an economic decision that's counterproductive. But what I argue there is that the only reason you can make that decision is because of economics, because you're in a position where you can have your kid not work. So now you don't, but you're not doing it before you like, you get what I mean? So like, as in you still have that bedrock where it puts you in a position where then you can make these decisions, which then, can be good and counter economic and things like that. You can never do any of them when you're not in a position to do it. You know, do you, like that's kind of what a I mean when of, I say Yeah, that. well, a lack of economic agency takes away many of your choices. I definitely agree with that. Yeah, and, and, and I would argue that's like, again, I don't say economics get drawn too much as like the money thing, but it's almost like just the ability of power that you get with that. Rather yes. than so, rather economic is like your position of power to then have freedom to time. So what um, I would say is economic instability, economic, a lack of agency in economic terms exacerbates other inequalities. Um, and an amount of money, there is an amount of money above which inequalities become trivial um, for the most part. Uh, so you have these stories where, for example, a, a, a PhD, a professor at Harvard is hassled by the police for going into his own home because he's black. There is a social inequality and a racism there that exists that puts him in danger, even though he's very privileged. But for the most part, 99 times out of 100, that doesn't become more of an issue. You know, he's not 99 times out of 100, that doesn't descend into violence or abuse because he has economic agency and he can call on the resources to protect him. But uh, but even to go into that, like an example like that, and this probably might tie into the female one you mentioned earlier about uh, not having free time earlier. Actually, no, it doesn't. That's a separate thing, which I want to talk about as well. But this one, um, that's still, you could, uh, and this is, again, this is why I am, it's going to sound like I'm simplifying, and, and I am totally. But when I yeah. say like the class point of view, so even that, race, race doesn't exist outside of like, it's not like anyone's genetically different to each other in any sense. It, it's all a history of um stuff that's happened in the past and that's then resulted in the time now so when this professor who's in a good position gets stopped by the police the reason he's getting stopped is because people of that look like him are being mistreated economically so if you actually had a more equal society where they weren't class-based warfare upon them for 150 years since getting freedom if that didn't exist he wouldn't be getting stopped right now because of the color of his skin because if you like that still exists as a class issue like, so racism is a class issue, just like, See, gen- I, like, yeah. I agree with you to a certain extent, but as I, I think there's the, that it doesn't need to be one or the other, actually. I think that the two lenses uh, sort of slot in in front of each other. One is clarifying, the second is more clarifying. So that I think that most people are, as you say, I think most people will look at a situation through and they'll jump to the lens of, race or gender or sexuality, where many times the issue would be uh, clearer through the lens of economics, but is made doubly clear if you use both lenses. Yeah, basically, essentially, like that, and, that's what, and that's what I mean. So if one is done at the expense of the other, then you'd much, like, again, and even though this isn't how people work and how thoughts exist, but, like, essentially, there's almost a double, and this is what I feel like, and this is where I start going almost into crazy territory, uh, but like there is there is no such no there's no evil person planning anything and anything at all like as in in terms of through history people just have things that appeal to them and they go in that direction or whatever and so when I look at things like uh, the lenses that you described there of like gender and race and stuff it almost makes sense for people in a position of power to focus on these lenses rather than the other lens because one of these lenses doesn't involve them having their systematic 
their systemic change happen like the other. Yes, which, yeah, that thing that I said before is the ideology is much more powerful if you can hook it on to economic benefit and it's useful to you to be woke as long as you don't have to completely dismantle the class system that benefits you. Exactly. So in the end, you could actually have a situation where people are then using these lenses and as a result, they're actually not focusing on the one that matters most and that impacts people the most in a way. Yeah, like, I mean, it, it doesn't cost the CEO of a company anything to have a woman CEO, a woman, um, whatever, chief, <laughs> yeah. you know what I mean, CFO. It doesn't cost a CEO yeah. any money to have a woman working as a CFO, assuming that yeah. she's as good as the next guy, which I assume she is. Like that is a, a statue. Yeah, that's a kind of... Um, remedy to inequality that is a microscopic in terms of its impact whereas a macroscopic thing would be to say okay i'm going to chop my ceo salary which is you know a hundred times more than the average workers i'm going to chop it in half and everyone else will get a corollary benefit and the whole i'm going to restructure the whole company and we're going to have you know horizontal hierarchies and merit-based assessments and all these other things, you know, there, there are ways that you could do that. Say every, you know, female dominated industry, say all the cleaners get paid 1% of my salary and their profits are tied to the profits of the company. Like that's a thing that does more for feminism than hiring a single female CFO. Well, yeah. Yeah, that's, that's a classic thing. I remember uh, hearing that debate about uh, back, back in the day when it was like uh, when you had uh, Bernie Sanders and uh, Hillary Clinton and Donald Trump and it's like Bernie Sanders wants like money, to, like basically Trump wants 10 men in charge of the world. Bernie wants everyone to be in charge of the world and Hillary wants five men and five women in charge of the world. Like that's how to look at the difference between all of them, um, which like obviously that's a simplistic thing. But I guess that that... Like, because this and this is why it hits me because I do. I, when you start looking at everything through the class lens, you do go a bit crazy because you're looking at everything through that. And like the example is, and I think I've brought it up with you once before about like this is where I get tentative about the patriarchy as a concept. Which again, I've actually read up on more so I can understand it. I guess conceptually, but like I feel like the the very term patriarchy, um, if it's being used as a simplistic rallying cry, then I've got no issue with it. If it's a good way to get people on board with something, as long as then people don't then translate that to this is the answer though. Cause like, as any, like if you look at a poor black woman and you're like, your problem's patriarchy. It's like, I really feel like you're missing out on probably some factors which actually are probably more important than patriarchy. Unless you mean patriarchy in some very loose term, which almost make, makes it irrelevant in any technical sense. Yes. Or the problem, you know I mean? or say 50, let's say 50 to 70% of the problems that are being attributed to the patriarchy and may be in fact, the result of the patriarchy may that the patriarchy may be the causative element, but 50% to 70% of those problems could be solved by free education and a minimum wage. Exactly. And I, I think even more like, as in, I, I mean, I'm looking at a, Oh, there's so many, so much on this that I've done recently. Like I wonder, okay, for a few different ones, uh, I read, I've gone on a bit of a George Orwell binge lately. Um, I love, he's very good, very good. I, I rate him very highly in terms of how he writes and his whole life story. But he wrote a book called uh, Socialism and the English Language, uh, yes. where he basically talks about why socialism is good. And he raised the point in that, which I thought was very interesting because it's like a right wing almost way of looking at it but he talks about patriotism and how like you can't be patriotic like a socialist country is the only country that you can be patriotic in because you can uh like you you don't have the the insecurity there you're a part of the country it's looking after you you can look after it something as cold as capitalism will then like remove stuff like that from out of it um and like to go back and i think that plays across different things like including from gender and things like that because uh and this is why, again, I'm like 50%. I think it might even be higher. Like, is it 80%? Because, like, these issues exist, but I still feel like they're they're secondary. So, like, is it gender when you're talking about, like, uh, women who, like, maybe in their first, and it doesn't have to be a woman, it could be a man as well, in the first two or three years a child is born when they should have a nurturing environment. Capitalism is the reason that doesn't happen. Because if people felt economically secure enough where they're going to have a house, they're going to have food on the table. They're going to be relatively comfortable. They won't feel the pressure as much. Then they will do what they want to do, which 
again, could be a man or a woman, probably someone's going to stay home and look after the kids in a lot of the cases because it's fun and people feel love. That's an emotion that exists. But none of that can happen without, like, all of that is enabled. All of those fights are enabled by class warfare first, essentially, like as in that's the number one thing. And then after that's everything else. Which I think is sort of the core of the problem in so much argumentation, which takes us back to the beginning of what our discussion and we'll sort of start to wrap up here, which is I feel like people's tendency is to see one thing as an explanation for everything um, or for a significant part. So you say more than 80%, but all of the, like it's yeah. how much, I guess our, our, our real fundamental problem is that first of all people are not willing to go a lot of things are true at the same time Mm -hmm. you know this economic incentive for the mills and the factories and the you know there were about eight million things happening at the same time that pushed that trend in society and then we sort of neaten it up historically to look back on it or we draw these lessons from it yeah ones that we feel are relevant at the time When, you know, there was whatever, however many, many million people making however many million decisions that pushed that trend for all of the different reasons. And then also we're really bad at attributing the right weight to things. So something may be sexism, something may be a class advantage, something may just be, but we will see things through the lens that we find most useful, you know, there are situations where I have felt like I was being treated badly because I was a woman when I was, in fact, just dealing with an asshole. <laughs> and he was just an asshole who happened, like it just, he, he was going to be an asshole to me no matter who I am. But because I'm a woman, there's a kind of a, a rut or, or a route down, you know, how um, raindrops make trails on on the window and then the other raindrop will follow the same trail mm-hmm. he's going to choose to firing uh, yeah he's going to choose the line of attack that is what he sees as a weak point which is my womanhood and that will be his line of attack because that inequality exists but the driving factor is not necessarily that i'm a woman but that he's an asshole <laughs> does that make sense yeah 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 and that's uh <laughs> i guess like well, yeah. Uh, so then if you're like, oh, we've got to fix women's rights here, but it's like, no, you've got to fix asshole rights. <laughs> you actually got to stop these guys being assholes rather than the other thing. Like, and that's kind of where I've come from because I'm not like, yeah, I guess it comes down to waiting because I, I, that's why I'm saying I'm still stuck in this place. I cannot get past what, the more I look at it, the more I'm like, Mark's got it. Like, as in everything is class first and then everything else. And like, as in any argument, and I, don't, I haven't seen anyone, which to give me fair, I probably haven't, I don't who wants to read counter opinions? Like I'm, I'm enjoying all these I'm enjoying these opinions agreeing with me. I don't have time to disagree. It's only so much time in the day. I wouldn't say class first, but I would definitely say, and when when I say class, I'm using it as a proxy for economic agency in a society. Um, because I do think class boundaries and class barriers are shift a lot and are not necessarily the same in all societies. Um, and there are new categories that are emerging that are sort of complicating that, you know, people who are economically um, disadvantaged but educationally advantaged or, you know, all these other things. But I would say certainly class a lot, not necessarily class first, but class a lot more than people think. Well, yeah, I'll, I'll give, I'll, I'll take that for now. You know what? I'm going to be doing it, <laughs> vibing with you. If that's, a, if that's what we're getting to, that's still pretty good. <laughs> and I think more people need to appreciate at least class a lot. Rather yes, than class, class a lot. So where, well, it's a useful lens and I think it's a more useful lens than it is a used lens. Um, where can people mm-hmm. find you online? Where can people support your work? Uh, they can follow me, uh, George Wattup. W-H-A-T-U-P on Instagram and Twitter and that. And I've also got bookish comedy on Instagram and Twitter. They can follow. So one of those two. Brilliant. Well, thank you so much for having tea with me. I'll talk to you again soon. Thanks a lot. Cheers.
do you know or do you not this dolphin mistress that we have got Elsie Thompson it is her name and she helps the dolphins at every frame lousy rifle doll lousy rifle day on Monday morning when she comes in she hangs her coat on the highest pin turns around for to view her frames crying damn you dolphins cry up your ends lousy rifle doll lousy rifle day and when the boss he looks round the door, tie our ends up, doffers he will roar. Well, tie our ends up, we surely do. For Elsie Thompson, but not for you. Lally rifles all, lally rifles day. Oh, Elsie Thompson is going away. Is it tomorrow or yet today? We'll tie our ends up and leave our frames and wait for Elsie to return again. Lally rifle doll, lally rifle day.